Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 26 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. P-Supers, thanks for tuning in. I'm starting with a quote from Walt Whitman today. I am large, I contain multitudes. And I think this quote encapsulates the complexity of both organisations and the people within them. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Dr. Annie Gascoigne. In part one, we heard about Annie's fascinating career history, how she's worked in radically different organisations, and she talked about pivotal moments, like going back to uni and how she found herself in the surprising position of embarking upon a PhD. Well, that PhD is now done, and in this episode we're diving into the research. You'll hear Annie introduce and expand upon organisational flexibility as a concept and its component processes, which I think is highly relevant in these extraordinary times. I think you'll find that organisational flexibility provides a useful and practical lens to consider the challenges that all organisations face. PeopleSoup is a community of people who are interested in behavioural science at work and how we can make it accessible, fun and useful for ourselves and each other. At work, behavioural science has the capacity to enhance our well-being, help us be the person we want to be more often, and provide us with perspectives to enable cooperation, collaboration, and innovation. It was psychologist Abraham Maslow who said, A first-rate soup is more creative than a second-rate painting. And that was the inspiration for this podcast. More than ever, the world of work is a heady mix of people, behaviour, events, and challenges. When the blend is right, it can be first-rate. Behavioural science and psychology has a lot to offer in terms of recipes, ingredients, seasoning, spices and utensils. So welcome to People Soup, where we aim to nourish the mind and flourish at work. If you do enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you would subscribe, rate and review it, whatever platform you're on. It helps us amplify our voice and reach more people with stuff that could be useful. Before we go on, there are a couple of useful diagrams representing psychological flexibility and organisational flexibility on the show notes, which might be useful to have a butcher's at. You can find them at rossmackintosh.co.uk. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to part two of my chat with Dr. Annie Gascoigne. Oh, Annie, Dr. Annie Gascoigne, welcome back. Thanks very much. Happy to be back. I just did that because actually I've just been on a loo break. <laughs> but it was really professional. <laughs> hey, thank you. Thank you. I didn't take any with me on the video. <laughs> <laughs> it's, when I say professional, it was professional until you brought up the loo break. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know me. So in our last episode, we got to hear about the rich variety of your career history, which is brilliant. I love it. I particularly love your your willingness to express your vulnerability and, and your humbleness in the way you describe things, but also that way you you really want to support people. That comes across so, so strongly. I love it. There are so many nuggets in there. This episode, we're moving on to discuss your speciality, which is organizational flexibility. And I love the way you're even sort of smiling and giggling there, as if like you're looking around to say, who is the expert in this? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's you, Annie. What? Yeah. So organizational flexibility, where would we start? What would be a great way to introduce this to the P-Supers so we get a handle on, on what, what we mean by that? Mm. 
think this is a nice question. And I think for me, there's a couple of things. So the first is an ability to connect with what the organization's about, why, why it even exists, what's it even trying to do, what it's trying to serve in, in existing. And I think that's important and we can often forget why the founders set it up. Is that even still the reason it's doing what it's doing? What's the point of this organization? I think reconnecting with that can be quite powerful, but also important. And the other part of it is an ability to notice opportunities for doing what matters, for pursuing that aim of the organization, even with the constraints that are going on for that organization. Those constraints uh, may be external, they may be internal within the organization, staffing, financial, all of those sorts of things. But that ability to notice opportunities in spite of those constraints for doing what matters for the organization. Thank you. I think that, that, that really brings it to life in a really practical way for me. And it makes me think of organizations that don't keep checking in on the, the purpose of why we're here. I think it needs to happen quite frequently. Otherwise, an organization could become disconnected with what's around them and fail. Yeah, for me, there's something about why, why are we showing up for work, why, for this organization? And it's, mm. I think it can be more powerful when we're connecting with what the organization is trying to achieve as a whole. And that, that doesn't mean that we have to totally, uh, our values have to be the same as the organization's. That's something that I've come to understand and realize. I think when I went into my PhD, I really thought that there would be this alignment. When I talked in the last episode about person and organization fit and theories around that, I thought there would be an importance about what I what matters to me as an individual must align with the organization I work in. And maybe that's what didn't gel perfectly when I was working in financial services or something, you know, that those were thoughts that were coming up for me. That, that's so interesting because I think I come across that a lot in organizations. Organizations generally want to have a set of values. Mm. And you could have you could have different values at different levels of an organization. I think in those enormous organizations, you might have overarching ones, then you might have ones for a departments, then a team. And people can get a bit value-weary. I see people talking about, oh, it's just a poster on the wall and no one lives by them. And my personal values don't align with them. So hearing you say that that realization that personal values don't have to just be a mirror of the organizational values is, is something that I think is, can be quite difficult to convey, but it's so important. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, for me, I think this is one of the key things. So working out what matters for me and, and doing more of that uh, I, is helpful for me psychologically. So doing that within an organization, recognizing how I I can do things that matter for me while also doing things that matter for the organization achieving its aims. Mm. And that can create a, some space for me to pursue organizational goals in a way that helps me to learn and spread my wings and do things that are enriching for me and still achieving things that are important for the organization and moving it forward. 
I love the way you describe that because I get that sense of liberation from you, the way you describe it. Yeah. That the two can coexist. Yeah. Yes, it's exactly that. And I think that requires uh, some trust within the organization, Mm. allowing, in fact, encouraging a certain amount of that spreading of wings that people are all different and we're all bringing ourselves to our roles and there is a multitude of ways that we can achieve the same goal and all of us are going to do that differently because we are different humans. We've got our different histories and there are different things that uh, motivate and inspire us and that piece that's going to motivate us is if we're getting something out of this because we're doing something that matters for us along the way. Mm. But for uh let's say a manager for for the organization to give people that space and encourage people to take up that space uh, i th- i think is is challenging and mm-hmm. requires a certain amount of openness to the discomfort that can arise from that and so the need to to build trust within organizations uh, around that i love that description as of the combination of trust openness and space. I love that idea of giving people space to grow. Sometimes organizations can look to build so many frameworks and and rules that it, it inhibits that space and it, it kind of restricts that place until we kind of feel a bit boxed in. And I've certainly felt that in organizations in the past where there seem to be so many rules and regulations about how everything is done. You can feel a bit I haven't got room to move here. I don't have that space. Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And and, and it's normal and natural and uh, to some extent, s- extent sensible that organisations would want to put rules in place. It's not that rules are wrong. Or, in fact, it's just not about right and wrong. It's, it's about what works for pursuing the organisation's aims. And if mm. we put rigid rules in place, it can... S- it can do that boxing in and it can stop people noticing opportunities that may be better for pursuing those aims. You know, whoever set up this process in the first place may have been brilliant in their time and it may have worked on the day that it was invented, this process, whatever it is. But actually, over time, maybe things change or something in the environment changes. Even just a different person taking on that role, it doesn't work so well. And so having rigidity in those rules and procedures without a willingness to notice when there are opportunities for improving upon them for the organisational aims, I think that's where we get into difficulty. And yet it feels safe. I, I really relate to when... I know P supers know a bit about psychological flexibility, I think. And our willingness to stick to our habits is the sort of non psychological flexibility way of doing things. But we, we recognize that for individuals, for us, that yes, habits are comforting, aren't they? They're just easier, they take up less mental energy. We just do it because we always do it without thinking about it. And that feels safe because it's easy. And so in an organisation, if we've got rules and procedures, it feels safe, doesn't it? The boss knows that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do if I stick to the these rules and procedures. So I won't get into trouble. I'll get my paycheck uh, and it'll all be fine. So there's there's something comforting that we get into that space, but it can become a rut 
I think. Uh, it, mm. it, it stops us looking for opportunities because we get out of practice of looking for opportunities for doing what matters. And I see, I think I see this in, in organizations, people who say, well, we've always done it like that. So this is the way we do it. And, it, and that's kind of turned into a habit. But then surely we're missing out on the possibility of innovation. Well, absolutely that. You know, as organizations often get excited by their culture about this is the way we do things here. And that sounds inspiring on the one side, but it's it's the, the flip side of what you just said that, well, it's just what we do. And it, it's, it can really stop that innovative approach, I think. So as Annie said, this concept of organizational flexibility takes the concept of psychological flexibility, kind of ramps it up to an organizational level. And that was developed by Professor Frank Bond, hashtag Frankie boy, (laughs) and Dr. Annie Gascoigne. So how can we present this? One way, because when when we deliver psychological flexibility in organizations, we often talk about three pillars. And we have the pillar of noticing in the center, that capacity to develop the skill of noticing what's going on around us, noticing perhaps opportunities, threats, and noticing how we're showing up in the world and also what our minds are producing. Then we have the pillar of active, which is all about connecting with our personal values in different life contexts and translating that into committed action. And then we have another pillar, which is called open, which is about us being willing to experience some internal discomfort, our minds producing thoughts, emotions, memories, sensations. Can we be with those? And can we realize how they might impact on our behavior? Can we get a bit of space between us and that mind content? Can we get untangled from that and give those emotions space rather than try and move away from them. So that's a little potted tour around the pillars. I'll put a diagram of the pillars on the show notes. But I wonder if we could use those pillars to talk about organizational flexibility. Yeah, I think so. I think there's such a nice mirror between psychological flexibility and organizational flexibility that it's really tends to be quite straightforward in my mind to move from one to the other. And I think those pillars work really well to try and help describe this uh, at the organizational level. Maybe if we go through the pillars for organizational flexibility, how would that be? Yeah, you started with the noticing one when you talked about psychological flexibility. And my tendency for some reason is to start with the active pillar, as it were, for the organizational level. So for me, this is about kind of what we started this episode with was connecting with what the organization is actually about. What is it trying to do? Not just a label that goes on the website that says, this is our mission that nobody ever bothers to look at again or cares about, but really kind of using that as to, to consider why are, we, why are we even here? And then building action in line with that. And I realize, you know, in a tiny organization that can maybe seem quite straightforward that why the organization is here may feel quite fresh and clear. And so building action related to that can be more tangible. So this is what we're about. We're about um, uh, feeding our community in the local grocery store or whatever it might be. And then taking action, we might set goals that are around 
how we want to do that and steps to achieving those goals in order to feed our community. But for a massive organisation, that can feel quite distant, I think. If I take myself back to working in financial services, I was not at the front line. I was not directly serving our customers for their various banking needs. I was working in the back office, re-engineering processes. And the connection of what our customers might want was really quite distant. And yet, what I was doing on a day-to-day basis did need to connect with that. And Mm. being able to, to build goals uh, that align with that. So, you know, lots of organizations do this in terms of cascading goals. So the CEO will have goals that in theory are align, aligned with that mission. And then their directs have goals that are supposed to align with the CEOs and on it comes down. But really, it tends to be a tick box exercise once a year. And by the time that anybody in the back of a back office of the organization gets to see their goals, it's you know, already March and your goals for the year are forgotten kind of thing. Mm. So there's some checking in here, always keeping that purpose and mission in sight to see if it's still relevant, I guess, particularly as the world is changing so frequently or so enormously, particularly at the moment. Yeah, absolutely that. You know, I think the part of the importance of this is that so many of us will just follow fads or we'll do things that are impulsive. What are other organizations doing? What's everyone doing right now? Rather than, does this work for us here now in this situation? What opportunities are there for us? So it takes some sort of, I want to use the word relentless, but that relentless checking in and then the alignment. I love the way you took out following fads and copying competitors. Mm. Because that could be the temptation or just drifting are going, oh, there's something shiny over there. Let's go and have a look at that. Let's do that because they're doing that, the sort of FOMO going on. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not that fads are wrong. It's not that competitors are wrong. It's not that sort of, you know, sometimes experimental drifting can actually come up with some new ways of doing things. Oh, that shiny thing was actually interesting after all. But... It's healthier when we're checking in with how that helps. So drifting on purpose to, okay, let's just see what happens because we are so unable to make concrete decisions that actually purposefully taking the action of drifting or purposefully checking in with, oh, this is what our competitors are doing. Let's try that out and see if that works for us in line with what matters to us here. So it's not that that those are right right or wrong, good, bad. It's do they work for us in our context? Mm, And I think that context word is so important because I see it quite a lot, both in in people offering stuff to organizations, but also within organizations that people will say, um, oh, this worked in organization X and now they're nailing it. They're making a gazillion trillion pounds. So let's do exactly the same that we're doing it in our context with our customers. Mm. No, ain't going to work because you're a different organization in a different context with different customers. Yeah. It's such a, such a kind of appealing 
possibility to think, oh, right, if it works there, it'll work here. And it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I think there's another one that's kind of interesting to me is the the kind of opposite desire to have a unique selling point. We must be utterly different. We must be unique. And actually, two different organizations can have the same aim, you know, with my little grocery store example of feeding the community kind of idea. There can be multiple of those. But they're going to go about it in different ways because of the qualities of behavior for pursuing those uh, aims that matter to one organization, their context, the individuals working in, in that space compared to the other. So it's not just about then serving the community food, but how, what's the how around that? I love the way you describe that. That makes so much intuitive sense that two organizations could have the, the the purpose of feeding, serving the community, but the qualities of behavior they bring to that could be very different. I'm just thinking about tying action to that purpose and mission. Mm. What about if you just keep going and keep going and keep going and you're like a blinkered horse mm. and you're not checking in to check the impact? Is that is that Could that be a problem as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is where the kind of flexibility piece really uh, that word comes in helpfully there's also something around uh, persistence that's that's kind of unchecked persistence that is stopping us popping up our heads and looking for new it's not even about them being new opportunities but is is this opportunity helpful are there other opportunities recognizing that there's a multitude of perspectives for pursuing those aims some of them might be better or even checking what the constraints are. Have those changed as well? Are we just trying rigidly to keep on keeping on rather than reflecting on, does this work? So this idea of connecting to purpose and mission and then tying our actions to the purpose and mission for an organisation, are we seeing examples now of how that's playing out with, with coronavirus? Yeah, I, I think it's it's helpful to to bring this into the now. You know, if, if organisations were to try to continue to behave in exactly the same way as they've always behaved, I, I don't see how that can work. And, and we're seeing organisations having to adapt through this. They're really having to pay attention to their context. Even if organisations are able to pretty much do the same thing with people working from home, noticing that that's challenging you know, for, mm. for parents who have the kids running around in the background or just needing them, that blurring of work and home life that becomes that much more visible to organisations, that if they continue to persist in exactly the way that everything was before and treating people like that's an un unprofessional behaviour, it just doesn't make sense. I kind of want to highlight how that also doesn't make sense in the way we often behave as organisations in the in the before times, before coronavirus, that mm. people still have that home life that still, you know, is is part of what their daily lives are, and yet we expect them to almost not bring them their their whole selves to work. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. I think there's some interesting things to reflect mm. on. That is a, a really challenging organisations to have to be flexible right now. And I think there is an opportunity to recognize how tying actions to what matters to the organization is 
uh, important in the in the long term as well. I think we can often talk about bringing your whole self to work. We really want you to do that. But then this is forcing us to be directly exposed to our colleagues in their completely different habitats. Yeah. And that's kind of forcing this, this bringing your authentic self to work. And yes, there may be interruptions in meetings. There may be, they might have to go and attend to a child who, who wants to do something. And hell, that's all right. This is part of who this person is. So let's not shy away from it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely that. And and it also doesn't mean that bringing our whole selves means that we are showing all of our emotions all of the time. It's not that either, but it's recognising that we we can't cut off parts of ourselves. The, the, the person that I am in the morning when I show up to work uh, or before work is, is, is the same person who's showing up to work. And sure, I might put on a more professional face in the office, but I'm still the same person who had whatever challenges I had in the morning. And, mm. uh, and, and I think that doesn't mean that I need to tell everybody and express all of those challenges. But just noticing that all of us have got stuff going on inside, I think is, I don't know, it's, it's a more human way of behaving. And I love the way you've just described that. I'd love to have that on a little loop for organisations. Because I think there can be a fear, like, oh, I'm going to hear every element of someone's personal life. No, it's just being open to it. Mm. Yeah. And, and actually, I think that probably leads quite nicely to the second pillar, as it were, um, around openness. Mm. And I, in a way, I think we were touching on this pillar a bit before about, uh, I think of this as kind of twofold. One is around an openness to discomfort. And really, this is around how we can, can be willing to talk about stuff that's challenging. I, I think it's quite easy to suppress uncomfortable stuff in organisations. If there's something that isn't working, maybe we don't want to tell the boss. Or if the boss thinks something's not working, that maybe we'll, we'll, we'll continue with it for a while. Or, <laughs> or that it ends up being a bit of a blame game. This isn't working, so we'll you know shift it onto somebody else. Rather than being open to noticing where things don't work. Uh, I remember that being involved in implementing uh, an HR system and it was really not working. It, it, there, there'd been quite a lot of money put into it and people on the ground were saying, this, this isn't working. People who were supposed to be the use end users were saying, we really don't like this. We we would fail this in a test, but you're kind of trying to tell us it does what you think it was supposed to do. It's just not doing what we think it's supposed to do. And we don't think we'd use it. But money's been invested in it. And the deadline's looming. So we're going to hit the deadline. Uh, and so it, everything just continued. And then there was re-implementations because it wasn't being used and again more money being invested in that project and rather than saying being open to the discomfort of saying you know what maybe this isn't working maybe this isn't the right tool maybe we ought to look at other opportunities is should we go with a different route and it, this this went on for years of pursuing this same mm. thing of if we just you know, stuff it in. Uh, surely it'll work. 
<laughs> and yeah, I, I think those things are quite common that we just continue going down a path rather than being open to talking about what's not working. Mm, and that, that that openness, it can be so difficult to go there to want to or to be willing to experience that discomfort because it could be someone's, like you mentioned it was years, it could be someone's three-year project that's kind of their baby. And we're saying, actually, this isn't fit for purpose or this isn't going to work. But by not being willing to have those conversations frequently and early enough, they just kind of go on and on. And I love the way you described it. It's kind of cramming it in. Mm. Go on, if we just squeeze it in, we can fit it in and it'll be fine. And we'll meet the deadline. Yeah, yeah, it becomes about the goal becomes the, the important thing rather than what matters to the organization. Yeah. Gosh, this is so important. This is one of the reasons why often projects go way over budget, mm. way over their timeline, because possibly we aren't willing to have this being open to discomfort. Yeah, yeah, absolutely that. And, uh, you know, with um, agile project management, I think it's mm. p- part of the reason it's so successful is that it kind of addresses this. It's it's testing things in such small cycles and saying, does it work? What about this? Does this work? What about this? Does mm. this work? And so at each stage, there's an opportunity to say, this isn't working for us, or this this is great, or can we turn left a bit, turn right a bit, without it being one great big goal that is um, maybe more at risk of being somebody's baby. Mm. To me, I think around this, how can we help our organisations to be more comfortable with discomfort? <laughs> and and trust for me is the biggest thing here. And that, so this is what we were kind of talking about earlier, perhaps managers, but giving that space to their employees to meet the goals in a way that makes sense to them um, so that they can bring them their whole selves to it, to, to achieving that goal, to learning. Yeah, I, I think to, to enable trust, there's a, there's a lovely line that our, our friend and colleague Paul Atkins Oh yeah, and it's around trust—a key element of trust being about richly rewarding vulnerability. And I really love that he mentioned it in Dublin last year, and so when that July, and that's that just keeps on rattling around in my head. And so the idea for me is that in an organisation, we might express ourselves in a way that is so my project doesn't seem to be working as well as it ought to, or. I don't know how to go about achieving this, or I'd like to experiment. Is that all right? Or, you know, any number of things that is expressing a certain amount of vulnerability and having colleagues around, not having to agree with it, but rewarding richly the person speaking out and being in their vulnerability. That's definitely going on a T-shirt. Mm, yep, yeah, that is the one for the T-shirt, isn't it? And we were speaking a bit about rules before as well, feeling like they could constrain and they can be useful, but but there needs to be some flex. Is there something around that in this pillar as well? Yeah, very much that's where this sits for me in that pillar. And I think they kind of go together to me because when we put rules in place, what that's doing is helping us to kind of almost bypass the trusting. It's like you, you stick to the rules and then, well, then we're fine with each other, aren't we? Um, mm. Whereas if we 
are more open to being less rigid with the rules. We then need to be more trusting with one another. We need to be more open to the discomfort of stepping outside the rules. We don't necessarily know exactly what will work. You know, I have this image in my mind of the manager who's maybe been doing this job for a long time and really knows it inside out, knows how they would do it. And now they've got a team of people. They can't do it all by themselves, this manager. That's why they've hired this team. But what they would really ideally like is a clone of themselves because all of us want to have a certain amount of control over the effects of our actions, you know. So we we want to have that sense that... Uh, what I do, I, I can control the outcomes a little bit. So if we then had clones of ourselves, then we could get them to do exactly that, what we would do. But we don't have clones. And that already requires a certain level of discomfort that we need to let other people do things in their way. But so often we are then controlling them by rules to say, Right, okay, what I'm going to try and do is get what's in my head out onto the page. So these are the instructions, follow them, and then you're being as close to my clone as possible. And those individuals in the team aren't going to respond with motivation to that. They're sure they might show up and earn their wage and do the job, but it's not going to bring themselves to the job. It's not going to bring meaning to their work. It's not going to be about noticing opportunities that are better ways of pursuing what matters to the organisation. Hmm. And I think this is a really interesting point and quite profound for leaders because mm. I don't think we include this in our all of our leadership training in organisations. This key element that is quite tempting to wish we could have a little team of mini-me's mm. who thought like us and acted like us and just got us. Mm. Where in reality, you've got to realize as leaders that people are watching us. And if we give a signal that, oh, well, oh, that's very interesting, but you can be kind of dismissive in your tone or the way you feed back on a, a different idea, that you can just close stuff down. So these rules might not necessarily be in a staff handbook, but it might just be the way you interact that, that closes stuff down. Uh, absolutely. Yes. I think that's such an important point, you know, that, that rules aren't necessarily what's written on the page that it's so much about what's socially reinforced. There's a lovely line about unconscious collusion, that we unconsciously collude to create these safe environments. I say safe in quote marks, where the manager is giving the instructions and reinforcing these instructions. And the, the team, the employees are going along with it because, it, oh, I know what the rules are. I know what I'm supposed to do. And that makes people feel safe because there's less uncertainty, less ambiguity. But actually, while that might help with a certain amount of short-term relief, it doesn't help with the longer-term ability to get meaning from our work as individuals or for the organisation to do meaningful stuff. Hey, P-Supers. At this point, Annie moved on to introduce and explore the central pillar of noticing. This, I think, is the kind of glue in the middle around noticing. So think about it in terms of taking perspectives. So part of that is taking perspectives around time. And part of it is taking perspective about different from, from different people's perspectives. So starting with the time piece, 
for me, there's an awareness of trying to figure out what works and and how we define what works is do we, do, what, what the consequences of our actions are. But we don't know what the consequences are going to be. We're not able to predict the future 100%. But, but what can we do around this? What can we say that we anticipate, if I do this, then X is likely to happen? And great, that seems to be in line with what the organisation is wanting to achieve. So it's really trying to help us to think about, if I do this thing now, is how likely is this to help us with what happens in the future? Mm. And that requires us to be able to do a bit of time travel to the future, to be able to think about what the outcomes might be of an action right now. And it also probably requires us to do a bit of time traveling backwards to say what's worked in the past, what have other people done in similar situations, essentially what evidence is there that this might work. So it means recognizing that now is different to then. I'm not doing exactly what I did in the past because I'm recognizing that now is different and I can only predict the future to some extent based on what I know now. Um, so I, I, that's, I don't know if that's, that resonates, but it's there's, there's something around that the importance of recognizing now as a unique moment. And there's only so much we can know from our past and the future about how that ties together, but it's using that to recognize in this situation, how much is this likely to work? And it's something you said in part one, that makes perfect sense to me. So the uniqueness of this moment it can be informed by stuff that's happened previously, but I shouldn't hold on to that too rigidly because then it just becomes a sort of blinkered, this has worked before, this will work now, or this has worked in another organisation, so this will work in ours. It's just using that as an evidence base to think about if we did that, if we tweaked it like this and like this, how might that play out in the future for us in our context right now? Yeah, that's beautifully reflected back, Ross. Thank you. That's, that's yeah, exactly that. So that's the time piece. There was another element of that about, I guess it relates to the mini-me's. Yeah, uh, for me, all, all of this we've been talking about is around the organisation being flexible. And yet the organisation is made up of humans <laughs> and all of us with our internal stuff going on which means that there are there's a multitude of opportunities from all of those individuals with all of the different perspectives that we can see we've got different angles based on the different our own different histories what we know who we are but also where we sit in the organization who we're dealing with and those different perspectives for any one given task for any one given goal people are going to approach that in different ways so mm. the organization may be let's say trying to launch a new product and the cfo is going to have one opinion about how that product launch might go actually that person's probably that cfo's probably got several opinions but um but they're coming from one angle one perspective and the person who's working in the manufacturing arm of building this product is going to have a different view, which is different to the person in sales, to different to somebody in HR. Like, there are going to be different perspectives. And it's not that any of them are wrong, but there's a multitude of perspectives. And how can we think about taking the next small step forward? 
together as an organization. So really recognizing that the multiple perspectives provides opportunities for seeing important things and yet all of them are also constrained by wherever they are at. So how can we then kind of harness the mm. the the joys of that and the challenges of that for then taking that back full circle to our active pillar of those committed actions? I love the way we're seeing it all connecting now, all the different elements of organisational flexibility, that way they're all meshing together. This is so important for organisations. Yeah, I I think none of these ideas is uh, in isolation. You know, why are we being open to discomfort? Not for the sake of it, not because discomfort is a great thing to do. We we do it in service of doing what matters for the organization. Um, mm. How do we do what matters for the organization? Well, we, we notice perspectives. We give people space to uh, pursue goals because that's what helps our individuals within our organizations to be more psychologically flexible and more able to help the organization. So it all, all of it relates that it's not about doing any one of these things in isolation or doing any of them rigidly away from the others. Hmm. So in this, in this noticing pillar for organizational flexibility, is there anything else? Is there any other component? Even the word noticing, I think, is probably a good place to kind of latch onto. That the ability to notice what information we have available. So what are we noticing in our external environment? What's happening around the organization in the market? Uh, what's happening with our customers? What's happening with regulations? What's happening with coronavirus? Things that are happening mm. in our external environment, that, that willingness and ability to notice the features of that external environment are really important in order for, for us to notice where there are opportunities. We can say the same thing internally within the organization as well. So noticing what information we have in whatever forms that information comes, our colleagues, who is able to help us? What knowledge have we gained from previous experiences in the organization? Where could we find new information? Who might be well-placed to come up with ideas? So those sorts of what's going on and monitoring what's working, what's not. Mm. So those kinds of ideas that then help us to see what those perspectives around time and different people, it's helping to spot which of these are opportunities, which are constraints and those kinds of Mm. things. Just that describing of... um that awareness of what our competitors are doing, what's happening in the market, what are our customers saying, perhaps. But also, there might be threats out there. Yeah. That if we don't have this, this noticing function as an organization, we might miss out on those threats. Mm. And I love it the way that, again, we're seeing it linked together, because if someone can see a threat but doesn't feel able to voice that threat then that could be the failure of the organization or the failure of a project. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Mind blown. I love this. I love this organizational flexibility. Annie, that's been truly amazing. It's been so great to hear about in part one. We heard about your history of your career and the different elements of it. And this episode, we've heard all about organizational flexibility and it's really been brought to life for me and I'm really buzzing about it. And I really get from you that you want to hear from people what they reckon, what's their experience of hearing about this? Does it relate to their experience of an organization? So can can we encourage people to get in touch via the podcast? 
and you and me can discuss it maybe even on an episode oh that would be absolutely fantastic i would so love to hear what resonates for people i i, I think you described it perfectly and like how, how their experiences relate to what we've been talking about here yeah that would be great if they could get in touch russ brilliant so there you have it p-soup is an open invitation to get in touch and just tell us what you think what's your initial reaction to this organizational flexibility and the elements Annie's described so beautifully for us Annie, thank you so much for joining me on a Friday morning to talk through this. It's been an immense honor to hear about it. And I love the way you explain it and your openness, honesty, and humbleness in what you describe is it's truly inspirational. So thank you. Thank you for coming on and joining me. I'm really, really grateful. Oh, it's been absolute pleasure, Ross. It's so, uh, so great having an opportunity to chat about it and i really hope that uh p-supers enjoy it uh, enjoyed hearing about it and I, uh, as we said i'd love to to hear feedback on that brilliant well enjoy the rest of your day and thanks again thanks russ p-supers that's it in the bag i'd like to thank annie for being a fabulous guest if you like this episode of the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, rating or review are also very much appreciated. Some of you may have seen that I've had some lovely people soup bookmarks printed. If you'd like a couple, just send me your address, wherever you are in the world, and I'll pop a couple in the post. The show notes are at rossmackintosh.co.uk, and this includes links to a few different platforms. I love to hear from you, and you can get in touch at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, we're at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic, and to you for listening. Look after yourselves, peace supers, and bye for now. And scene. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Wow, I'm sorry I've taken up more of your time than I anticipated. Well, uh, yeah, two hours, blimey. <laughs> but, I, but I think that's great. I think we've got some really, we've got two great episodes there.